My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode is Mike and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about why Zillow has paused its successful iBuying business, the Facebook metaverse and its new name change, and the potential for Tesla's new insurance business in Texas. So Mike and Marie, welcome to this episode of the Stock Club podcast. So you guys are kind of newbies around here, I suppose, but Stock Club's been going for about coming up three years now and and we're a pretty successful podcast I think by most means and you know in being a successful podcast we often get requests from like PR agencies and the like to feature certain guests on the show Um, and and usually these requests kind of come with a little pdf and there's a bio of the guest and they include some questions they'd like you you know to ask the guests as they come on you know obviously to promote whatever they're they're trying to promote so recently we got a request in and i'm not going to name names because you know I'm, I'm i'm not that kind of person but one of the suggested questions uh, really really stuck out to me and and it was this the question that they wanted me to ask this guest on this podcast was how did you convince your wife not to leave you after losing thousands of dollars of her money Guys, I don't know what you think. Uh, should should we get this guy on this, the show to ask him this question? Absolutely. He can diversi- <laughs> diversify his income stream with some marriage counselling. Yeah. It could be a new section on the podcast, you know, how to hide your financial losses from your wife. Yeah. Or fiancé, James, in your case. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I think it would be interesting to have both he and his wife on to determine, like, what holes he left out of the story. So then we can help her piece it together yeah. and make it <laughs> We're, we're really moving into a different genre of podcasts here. And just to your point, Mike, she definitely doesn't listen to this, so I could say... <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, well, let's move on to some proper news then. And one of the biggest stories in the past week is Zillow's announcement that it's pausing all of its home buying until the end of the year. So along with Open Door at Redfin, Zillow has revolutionized the concept of iBuying in the US over the past couple of years. So for anyone who doesn't know, iBuying is basically a process through which these companies use predictive algorithms to offer fast cash to people that are selling their homes. They then take the home, refurbish it or do any repairs they need, and then sell it on for a profit. So in other words, it's digital home flipping, but I'm sure the CEOs of all of those companies wouldn't really like you to call it that. Um, so Zillow um, is, is a company in the My Wall Street shortlist, and it's experienced a lot of success with this its um, Zillow Offers segment, pulling in well over $1 billion in revenue in its first year and $1.7 billion last year, even in the midst of the pandemic. Mike, with this recent news, what's going on? You know, if Zillow are saying, you know, this is such a successful part of their business and suddenly they're putting a pause on it, you know, the the millennial inside me is hitting the panic button is this a is this a wider market real estate problem or or what's going on over at zillow yeah well i think right now it's a zillow problem i was the same as you when i saw the headline i kind of my mind jumped to this big systemic issue but 
Are you a millennial? Are you Gen Z? I think I'm a millennial. Well, Gen Z starts in '96, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm fairly into millennials. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I was the same as you. I thought this is something going off here. Um, yeah. But no, it's more so actually to do with kind of the global supply chain issues everyone is having as well. Yeah. And Zillow is not going to be the first company to use this as a fall guy either. But there's no, there's been no problem with like the buying of selling houses. It, rather, it's the repairing of them. So Zillow has said it's experiencing a backlog due to labor and supply shortages. And to deal with this, it's basically pausing the purchasing of new houses to concentrate on the tra- transactions already under contract. So, so this means that basically they're, they're having trouble getting labor and, and materials in to actually fix up the houses. Why aren't the likes of Redfin and Opendoor experiencing similar problems? Well, I think they are. Like, I don't think there's many companies that aren't experiencing these logistic issues. But I'd say Opendoor and Redfin may have been better prepared than Zillow for this. Uh, like, I think we have to realize that Zillow kind of jumped in at the deep end with this iBuy. Yeah. So when it was the last one into the market, basically, in 2018, yeah. And has become the second biggest player. And I think it's not buying as many houses as Open Door, but like the pace at which it's accelerating is way ahead of everyone else. And I think it might have got a bit out over its skis a bit. Yeah. Just in terms of kind of matching this pace where it maybe didn't have the frameworks set up behind it, you know, the kind of back end. So mm. there's a few pressures on the company. Like Zillow bought 3,805 houses in Q2. Uh, that was double what they did in Q1. And they're wow. still losing ground to Open Door. And then there was another bit of pressure internally from uh, the CEO, Richard Barton, who said that he set a target for Zillow to buy 5,000 homes a month by 2024. So all this pressure externally and internally has kind of led to this unsustainable pace that I think is kind of come back to bite them a bit and this is where we see now it really sounds like kind of walking before you can run like they you know it's, it's easy to buy up all these houses but the actual process of of renovating them and, and then selling them on and um, seems to be tripping them up um you know one of the biggest risks with this eye buying strategy that has kind of been cited from the very start is that you know these companies as you mentioned zillow bought over 3800 homes in the last quarter alone if the market's suddenly to go sour these companies are left with thousands of houses in their inventories then you know what's your perspective on on this risk factor yeah it's interesting to kind of speculate how these companies would do when demand recedes i know they've always described themselves as market agnostic or cycle agnostic of course that's them saying that so (laughs) say what you will about that but like in a market like the current one which offers are being made in cash way above asking price like why why would sellers need ibuy you know yeah because in it's it's an absolute seller's paradise. Why would they need a service like Zillow's or Open Doors or Redfin's or whoever else? Well, sure, like, surely it makes the process a lot easier. Like I've never bought or sold a home myself because I'm a 30 year old man in Ireland. But you know, <laughs> it's it's not. I imagine it's not a nice process to to go through selling a house. I imagine it's a pain in the ass. Yeah, well, that's the, the key to this whole process. This whole industry is the convenience of it. But I would nearly suggest that like a service like this would become more necessary when kind of the safety and security of dealing with an open door or Zillow becomes a much bigger factor. So like people are, well, this is a guaranteed sale. I could yeah. have my house on the market for three months in a bad market and I wouldn't sell. So I think the trend for iBuying isn't particularly a hot housing market, more so it's a shift from online to offline to online. Yeah. If market conditions dictate this is a more valuable offering, then it might even be a good thing. I'm not, I'm not saying it is a good thing, but like, 
the, necess the necessity for eye buying in a bad market might even be more important than in a good market, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. So you mentioned Redfin, which is also a, a company in my Wall Street shortlist, and Opendoor, which is a company we keep quite a close eye on. Will you expect them to see any announcing anything like this in, over the next few months? Well, definitely not Opendoor because Zillow has a billion dollar ad business. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's able to kind of back off and say, look, we need to take a breather here. It's still making money in other it's ways. It's still making money. Like, as in, this isn't, well, it's coming up to its core business. I'm not sure. Revenue is kind of evenly enough split between the two, with obviously iBuying growing much faster. But, like, Open Door doesn't have the luxury to pause and say, look, we need to take a step back here and we need to shore up our back end, you know? Okay. Um, yeah, no, interesting. It's definitely one to keep an eye on then in, in terms of Open Door. So, then in general, like, we, we talked about how, I, I suppose, the whole idea of iBuying is. I think I heard the word before, the Uberfication. So, you know, Uber obviously made ordering a taxi quite easy. And it's these companies that are coming out and they're they're creating an app to to, to make boring or, or tedious processes a lot easier. And really, this is a, what, maybe a question I'll throw over to you. You know, the fact that now you can sell your home basically, you know, through, through, a, through an app on your phone or through a website. And, you know, I've seen some stories where people like close the sale of their home in just over a week. With things like this, do you think maybe that less friction is a bad thing and maybe there should be more friction for things like this? I think it's 100% dependent on people's lives in terms of like what yeah. is the reason for moving. I think when I've like looked at examples of people who use iBuying services, it's often young people under the age of 40 often they don't have children or they might be single and it's because they've been transferred from like one yeah. city to another for work and so for them they're just like oh i just want to get out of this house as fast as possible so that i can leave and not have to worry about flying back here to deal with you know viewings and signing documents and all that type of thing and so i think my concern with the business is maybe that like i think being frictionless is an advantage for those type of people but i'm wondering how many yeah. of those type of people there are it's it's that thing of of that's a reflection of kind of the like go-getter needing to be in a thousand offices type type work that we used to see in the past but as we begin to lean more and more on a work from home model are people going to be more used to the idea of you know being able to work from home so then if they want to move it's okay they can stay in one place for three months and show their house and deal with 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 that annoyance because at the end of the day they're thinking well i might end up getting more money for my house if i handle this process with a realtor rather than going to an i-buying service yeah it's definitely it's, it's a complicated industry but um yeah it'll be one we keep keep a close eye on especially to see what zillow do next over the next few months will be really important for them so let's move on then and you know it wouldn't be an episode of the stock club podcast if we didn't talk about facebook to some degree so two big bits of news came out from facebook hq this week the first was that the company is planning to hire ten thousand, ten thousand workers across the eu over the next five years in order to build its metaverse the second is that the company reportedly planning on rebranding and changing its name as early as next week so Lots of lot going on here for Facebook. Uh, first things first, Anne-Marie, what is a metaverse and should we be terrified that Facebook is planning on building one? When I am talking to my mom on the phone and she's asked me what a metaverse is, I know there's something going on here. Yeah, definitely. Well, actually, to best answer this question, I, I have to tell a story. So... This is this is a this sounds like Emmett Savage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here we go. Stick on your you're, virtual you're headsets. We're about to... Yeah, here we go. 
Okay. So actually, when I was in university, which wasn't actually that long ago, I took a course called Science and Literature, um, which explored the relationship between the kind of two disciplines in the 19th century. So the kind of genre of science fiction only really began to emerge in the 19th century with the publication of Frankenstein in 1818. And the whole idea was the, with the course was showing the relationship between kind of the fantastical thinking that would go on in the arts and then the sciences would kind of follow up. So someone would propose an idea in you know a novel and then science 20 years later would be able to produce that in real life because we were in this period of extreme acceleration. And a great example of that is the spectroscopic method, which is the method used to identify dried blood. So it's kind of something that we see all the time in like CSI and stuff like that. They put they put a liquid on on a blood stain and then they can say, oh, yeah, like that's definitely blood. Well, actually, that was invented in 1901 by forensic scientists, but it was actually first proposed as an idea by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in 1887 in a study in Scarlet, which is the first Sherlock Holmes novel. So it's kind of this idea that there's this this relationship. But one of the main takeaways from this course was the idea that as we've kind of progressed into the modern age, the arts and the sciences have been kind of pushed to the opposite ends of the academic spectrum and they don't interact as much. You know, like if someone majors in, in STEM, you don't expect them to be taking all these literature yeah. classes and learning about all these kind of fantastical ways of thinking. But if maybe if we look at this type of technology, if we look at the metaverse and some of its contemporaries, maybe it's actually the opposite. Because if we look at Elon Musk, for example, he actually credits the seven book foundation science fiction series by scientist and author Isaac Asimov as inspiring his love for clean energy technology and his desire to build spaceships to extend the reach of human beings. And similarly, the concept of the metaverse was actually first proposed in Neil Stevenson's 1992 science fiction novel, Snow Crash, in which all of the characters interact with one another as avatars in a three-dimensional virtual space that uses the metaphor of the real world. So there you go. That's how we get the term metaverse. So the kind of basic definition of a metaverse and what we kind of use today is that it's a shared virtual world or environment where people that people access via the internet. So we have simplified versions of these. They often look like video games. And I actually used to play some of them when I was a kid, which is embarrassing, but that we had things like webkins and neopets. Yeah. Which, like, you play as a little animal avatar, you know, you have a little job, you play games to earn money, you go to shops, stuff like that. The Sims as well. Would you classify that? Yeah, yeah, The Sims is similar, except it doesn't have internet connections, so you can interact with other people. Whereas these did, so you could interact with other people's avatars. So basically what Facebook wants to do is they want to take this one step further and, like, truly recreate life or work using virtual reality and augmented reality. So they want to make it as real as possible and really recreate life on online we saw a simple demonstration of the company's kind of vr workspace which is called horizon workrooms on cbs this morning where he took one of the hosts and they both put on vr headsets and they were just like sitting at a at a a big table and he was like oh we could work do our work in this in this virtual room and in some ways it is is really is like a continuation of what facebook has always done it's that idea of it wants to bring your life online but but now facebook wants to like bring you online and and everything that you kind of know and love But to go back to your question on should we be terrified, right? (laughs) Some key context that I left out about the book Snow Crash, which inspires everything, is that it's set in, quote, a bleak dystopian future dominated by technology in which the state has almost entirely retreated from the fore. The world is run by mega conglomerates and inequality is extreme. It's a bit on the nose, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we should be worried in the long term, but as of right now, the kind of examples that I've seen that that Facebook currently has produced still kind of look a bit like The Sims, so... 
Yeah, well, and you mentioned there some of the early kind of efforts, I suppose, we've seen from Facebook in their VR workroom and stuff. And it strikes me that, you know, this is, is by no means a new plan. It, it, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, I think, has been probably planning this for a long time. I think of the acquisition of Oculus. Is this is this the next phase in, in social media? Is this social media 2.0? Um, I kind of, I think like its first iteration is, is it continues to be in video games. So we have Roblox, which IPO'd in March and, and people were very excited about that. They describe themselves as a metaverse company, as does actually yeah. Epic Games Fortnite likes to call itself a metaverse. And both of those kind of hinder upon completing tasks and playing a game, but they do have some elements of life. So for example, musicians do virtual concerts in Roblox. So Ariana Grande and Lil Nas X have both performed virtually, which basically means that they are singing live, but like the sound is coming out of their avatar within the game. And even like some of the world's biggest fashion companies have experimented with making virtual clothing that could then be purchased within Roblox and worn by your little figure. So there are some elements of our real life being replicated in these. They're still, I don't know, it's still a little bit kind of silly. Do you know what I mean? Like we're not, we're not quite there, but I do think it is, that is the new type of social media is, is, is how can we interact in a way that is not just 2D, that's not just posting, you know, posts and and photos? How can we actually somewhat try to replicate the interaction of being in person? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I I completely concur with your point that it seems a bit silly, but I'm reminded of that quote, and I I don't know who to attribute to, but it's it's in reference to the internet and how, you know, it's it's what smart people are doing on the weekends we'll all be doing in 10 years' time or something. And it, it seems a little bit like that as well, that you know, I don't get it because I'm obviously not a smart person, but, you know, there, there's something there. Um, so definitely to keep an eye on. So let's move on then to the other bit, which is obviously Facebook changing its name. Mike, is this anything more than a big PR move, considering all the bad press Facebook have got over the last few years? Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of looking at what Google did and they started Apple.com and then founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin kind of stepped down basically because they didn't like getting pulled in front of Congress every second month and i could kind of see something similar to that happening maybe under this new name yeah mark zuckerberg maybe becomes the ceo of whatever it's going to be called meta.com or well horizon horizon, horizon is apparently yeah. on the uh on the the shortlist which uh us here at my wall street aren't best pleased about i think uh emmett emmett is gathering a team of lawyers <laughs> <laughs> jokingly <laughs> obviously turn, jokingly if anybody from facebook could turn into a new business just one class action lawsuit yeah exactly yeah seeing like mark zuckerberg maybe become the head of this and have a head of well he already has the head of instagram adam Masseri, who kind of took a lot of the brunt from all of the heat from the Wall Street Journal investigation. Uh, like he was the head of that, Mark Zuckerberg wasn't. So I think this could kind of be the new formation of it where Zuckerberg is still up at the top, little puppet master, and he controls all his voting shares and everything, but he kind of has three fall guys under, head of WhatsApp, head of Facebook, head of Instagram, who do the kind of almost the dirty work for him nearly. Yeah, and have to go to Congress, and have to <laughs> which to I'm Congress. sure he doesn't yeah. enjoy doing. Like that's why that's why uh, Bezos kind of stepped down as well. I'd say too. Yeah, it's it's probably it's probably nice to get to a point. That's probably the definition of success when you get so successful that you just don't have to answer to anybody anymore. You can just pretty much pay people to do it for you. Just so- go off and play with phallic shaped rocket ships, you know. <laughs> blast blast old men into space. Uh, so guys, let's hear it then. Obviously, Facebook is planning on renaming. If you guys had the the power to rename Facebook, what would you call it? I'm going to steal uh, something from The Office, which they, at one point, Dwight, when Angela breaks up with him, 
becomes very sad so much that he doesn't want to live in his real life anymore. So he creates a second life and the, the website is called My Second Life. And he lives entirely in that virtual world for a couple weeks. And so I think that they should just steal that from the office and just file, just just deal with the lawsuits. It, and just, it wouldn't be the first yeah. time they stole an idea in fairness. Mike, what, what would you call Facebook? I don't know. Maybe go back to the Facebook. No, maybe Facebook. maybe you could just go back to the. Do you remember the. that scene where he's like, I'll oh, drop the the. <laughs> just drop the Facebook. Drop the whole thing. Just yeah. don't bother. <laughs> the. The.com. Yeah, I buy it. I'll, I'll take it. Uh, so yeah we'll, we'll definitely I'm sure be talking about this again uh, on, on future episodes of Stock Club so let's talk about what's going on in my Wall Street at the moment so we just added a brand new stock to our shortlist and as Rory is away on holidays in Portugal hi Rory if you're listening this is the first stock Anne-Marie that I believe you had complete control over adding to the shortlist so I'm going to do the thing that annoys Rory so much and ask you to describe this company in three words um oh you're putting me on the spot here <laughs> okay I have to remember not to say the yeah. company's name okay um what if we if we do just the stock highlights? Okay, yeah, yeah. So premium branding, eco friendly, and founder CEO. Okay, you're already ahead of Rory because you can <laughs> pull that out of the bag. So we also have more great content in the My Wall Street app too, including Mike's full write up on the situation that's going on over at Zillow, and a first look from Rory, who obviously wrote it <laughs> last week on the glasses seller Warby Parker. Remember, you can check out all of this stuff if you sign up to the My Wall Street app now. Just follow the link in the notes for today's show. Uh, mailbag. So for this week's mailbag, we're actually going to try smash a few questions together that we got about a pretty big news story recently and a company that's no stranger to the headlines. This is Tesla, of course. So it was announced last week that Tesla would start offering car insurance to drivers in its new home state of Texas. Now, Tesla already offered car insurance in California, but this Texas announcement has drawn a lot of excitement with one commentator that I've seen claiming that the car insurance business part of Tesla alone could be worth one trillion dollars by 2025 and marie what do you think um a trillion might be a little bit high we might be shooting <laughs> shooting for the moon but i, think, I guess I that's his, what elon does his maths was a little bit off as well if you saw the tweet <laughs> we all make mistakes like a thousand, like. thousand dollars a year and and what, like 10 million people or something <laughs> yeah um but i actually don't hate it like i think it's a good idea i think Tesla will have the benefit of having so much driver data that they can probably give really precise quotes to people. Yeah. And then, you know, pe- they can encourage people to drive more safely and then they can gradually kind of reduce their insurance payments. I think that's kind of great. And it really reminds me actually of Apple Care. Okay. You know, the like insurance that Apple sells to you when you go into the store and buy a new phone and it's like, what's whatever, it's like $100 and most people just do it. And then the vast majority of people never end up using yeah. it. But it, that AppleCare became like a huge part of the early services revenue that they were able to generate. And and I know Apple doesn't like break down um, how much each individual service makes, but it's estimated that in 2020, they made $8.8 billion just in AppleCare. So this is like Tesla care yeah. for your car. And, and so that, that recurring I think, revenue is, is so important for companies, yep. isn't it? Like you think of Apple and, you know, they were a hardware company that sell an iPhone and that's, you know, one one transaction. Tesla are the same. They sell a, a Model X and they, they get the money for that. Is this them trying to, you know, get that recurring revenue stream maybe of, of money in every every year? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a reminder that like at the end of the day, like Tesla is a tech company that just happens to sell cars like Tesla is not a car company. And so, yeah, it's definitely them pursuing that subscription revenue. I wouldn't be surprised to see them add other benefits to your car that will be done via subscription revenue. They, they assume that that is actually the, the, the model that they're going to use um, when they kind of perfect 
their driverless technology. They think that it'll be done based on subscription revenue with the promise being this will constantly improve. So you should have to constantly pay for it. So you're excited about it, but maybe not a $1 trillion business. No, a trillion seems very high. I mean, like maybe if like ev- like tomorrow Biden is like, I'm going to give everyone in America a Tesla, maybe. Yeah, well, but maybe. I don't. I don't you see never that. know. Yeah, I, I think you have to also take into account that people bullish on Tesla might be a bit of fan of hyperbole slightly. You know. <laughs> I don't believe you, Mike. Okay, thanks for that, Anne Marie. Um, so let's finish off then today's episode with the elevator pitches as usual so we're going to go a bit different this time i'm going to ask you guys to pick a company you know we're in the middle of earnings season here so i'm going to ask you guys to pick a company whose earnings you're most excited about seeing this time around and tell me why michael go to you first what what company are you most excited seeing the earnings and why yeah well this one's a mix of excitement and slight anxiousness i guess but it's the one that's kind of kicking off my own personal earning season and yeah. that's teladoc i think everyone in my wall street who are most of them are shareholders as well aware it's been having a bit of a stinker of a year and yeah. stock prices cut in half since february this is, there was a big shift in sentiment away from kind of seeing it as just a pandemic play and then there was slowdown in organic growth. There was some big names like Amazon and Walmart encroaching on the market. Uh, so basically everything going against it. But there's been some green shoots very recently in the past month. And I hopefully now less so about the numbers, but more so about the kind of commentary and where the company is going from the earnings port we'll hear a lot about. Yeah. So in... Just this past week, it launched its primary care offering, Primary 360. It came first in a JD Powers telehealth satisfaction study, and it's made great inroads into the Canadian, Australian, and New Zealand markets in the last month. So I think it's kind of hopefully now started its turnaround, and we'll maybe see that this time next week. Do you think the price might have just fallen back down to earth a bit after all the pandemic hype? Yeah, well, there's a bit of that too. Everyone was saying the growth pull forward in 2020. Yeah, cool. All right, that's definitely one I'll be looking out for anyway as a shareholder in Teladoc. Anne-Marie, what company are you looking forward to? Well, maybe not looking forward. What company are you anxiously awaiting earnings from? Um, I think I would love to see Bumble's latest quarterly report, mainly because we're talking about the metaverse and the idea of, of more and more people bringing elements of their lives online. It was interesting to watch Bumble throughout the pandemic continue to grow users and, and revenue, even as people like couldn't go on in-person yeah. dates. And so I think the pandemic might have helped more and more people be comfortable with the idea of finding a partner online through an app. And then even on top of that, like Bumble is kind of a diversified dating app in that they have Bumble Biz, which is kind of like a very casual version of LinkedIn for networking. And then they also have a BFF setting, which is just to help people like find friends when they move to new cities or stuff like that. So I'm interested to see, has the pandemic really helped them kind of acquire users, but also push users into these new segments of their business? Because I think people are now more comfortable with this idea of, oh, I could meet someone online and go and see them in person. And and I, and you know, like that's not scary. You know, that's a concept that we're more comfortable with. And so as things are beginning to reopen in America, I'm excited to see their figures. And then also they're in the midst of a pretty significant European expansion. And so I'm excited to kind of see how that is going as the EU continues to reopen. 
yeah absolutely looking forward to that so that's it for today's show remember if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle make sure to get in touch you can find us as always on twitter that's at my wall street hq on tiktok that's at my wall street or simply just email us at pod at my wall that's p-o-d at my wall if you're enjoying the show make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to stock club on thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then tap to pay on iphone and stripe came along and changed everything with tap to pay on iphone and stripe i streamlined my payment process effortlessly Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.